Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And this week, we continue our exploration into trans and queer athlete stories you may not have heard, but you need to. And this week, we have a guest who wants to change the way we look at fitness, training, and coaching to help make the space safer. We're going to have that a little bit later. But in the news of the week, we're going to put the good stuff up front. And first, some really good stuff from 2021 Outsports Triumph Pro Athlete Award winner, Tiffany Abreu. Now, let's take a look at the last six months of the first transgender player in Brazil Women's Volleyball Super League. In April, she won our Triumph Award. Same month, Adidas features her in a high-profile ad campaign. If you want to see that ad, it'll be in the liner notes below. In May and June, she was the apple of the eye of many teams as a free agent during a free agent frenzy in Brazilian volleyball, including powerful Asasco Sal Cristoval. Now, we're talking about a team that's won five Super League titles and 15 Sao Paulo State Championships, the Paulista. And on Tuesday night, Tiffany did a little bit of this. Fabiola, contra-ataque, Camila Bright, ajeitou o levantamento para Tiffany fechar o primeiro set. And Asasco ended up doing this. Tocou na Fabiana, Michelle acelerou o braço! Para acabar com o jogo, vitória de Osasco! Pela décima sexta vez da história! Osasco é campeão paulista de vôlei feminino! Osasco, Sal Cristoval swept the series, 3-0 victory over Bariri to win the franchise's 16th Paulista. Now, the next step, winning the Superliga title, and that is a march that starts in November, and it races all the way into near April. And we're going to keep our eye on that. Congratulations to Sasko, and congratulations, Tiffany. And congratulations to the Chicago Sky, your 2021 WNBA champions. And they did it in four games over the Phoenix Mercury. They got the clinch game on Sunday. The MVP, Keila Copper, on fire from beginning to end throughout the finals. Ollie Quigley had 26 points in the clinch game. Candace Parker, as the team leader, the superstar, did what she was brought back home to Chicago to do. Get that first WNBA championship for the Sky. And this was special for Parker and Quigley. You see, they're Chicagoland kids. And they made the Sky the first professional basketball champions from Chicago since a certain guy named MJ back in 1998. Here's what Quiggs and Parker had to say. It's just an amazing feeling to be from here and see so many people in the stands that have been supporting you since you started. Like, I sent Allie a picture this morning of us when we were in high school. And it was like, man, not bad for two suburban kids, right? Like playing in the WNBA finals um, together. So I think it's just a moment where you just have to really take it in. And so that's, that's what that was. Also this week, the Premier Hockey Federation, formerly the National Women's Hockey League, announced their transgender non-binary participation regulations for the opening of the 2021-2022 season. Now, these policies were built in consultation with athlete ally and friend of the podcast, Chris Mosier from transathlete.com. Now, in the liner notes, there's a link to an article written by C. Morley from our sister publication, The Ice Garden, that breaks down a lot of what I'm feeling. And I'm going to tell you, I have issues with some of this policy. But the most glaring were these pieces of it right here. In the policy itself, it reads, transgender women are eligible to compete in the PHF if they've been living in their transgender identity for a minimum of two years. A non-binary athlete assigned male at birth is eligible to compete in the PHF if they've been living in their non-binary identity for a minimum of two years, as affirmed by the athlete in consultation with the PHF. Now, I'm going to tell you, sounds like somebody has a gate to keep. What does all of that mean? When we're talking about living in 
their transgender identity for a minimum of two years. How do you define that? How do you determine that? I mean, uh, and once again, Morley's article really asked these questions in fine detail. But when I look at this, I'm like, what? Really? What does that mean? Who decides that? Sounds sounds a little gatekeeping. And turning to the continuing the saga Hashtag just in saying. the state of Texas. And that saga has gotten that much worse in the last week, culminating on Sunday when the Texas House of Representatives voted 76 to 54 to pass through an amended version of AP 25, a bill which would essentially ban transgender students in Texas schools from competing in sport for those schools. This has been a part of a nearly year-long effort that has stretched through five different pieces of legislation, probably a Texas state record for the amount of total time in committee sessions, in House testimony, Senate testimony. And it probably bettered a world record for the amount of misgendering done by adults against kids. In Texas, that's been the last 10 months. That has been the battle. And amid that battle, there's been a lot of valor. There have been people who have stood up. And when I saw those people stand up and watching those hearings, I can only think of the late, great Monica Roberts looking down on them and looking down, especially on whom she lovingly called the younglings, trans youth, stepping in and speaking truth to power. And also the activists who have continued to pick up the torch that she carried for so long and let it shine brightly even unto this moment where it looks like Texas Governor Greg Abbott may sign that bill and end up doing what another governor, Ron DeSantis of Florida, did and possibly make a show of it. But yet, the fight continues. And one of the people who has impressed me in that fight is a, is a self-described dog and cat lover and policy nerd from Austin, Texas, a graduate of the University of Texas, named Ash Hall. Their voice has been prominent in this podcast as we've covered this issue. Their voice has had a lot to say. One of the biggest problems that I have with it is that it's this really insidious attempt to pit cisgender and transgender women against each other. Um, and it makes it sound like this is the only choice that we have to decide what's fair and what's not. And I reject that choice. We're acting like cis and trans women aren't already friends, aren't girlfriends, aren't, aren't schoolmates, aren't uh, team members. Um, we're acting like they're already like separate somehow. Um, and this bill kind of seeks to segregate trans women from cis women. And most Texans are not asking for that. And that voice you just heard is my honor to beam on, to beam up rather, to the transporter room. From Austin, Texas, Ash Hall, Energize. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Ash, like I said, it is an honor to have you. I admit, you, you have inspired me. I am impressed by you. I'm honored to have you in this forum. And right from the jump, this has been a long, hard battle. How, how are you doing right now? How are you affecting some self-care for yourself through this? Uh, as for how I'm doing, I'm admittedly very exhausted at this point. I've been fighting these bills for 10 months. Um, it's starting to wind down now. Um, I can't quite rest yet because I'm trying to see if we can garner a lot of pressure from Texans to get Abbott to veto the bill. I realize the chances of that are pretty low, but I'm the kind of person that believes that you have to be able to say that you did everything you could when the stakes are this high. On your Twitter, it says you're a policy nerd. What got you into this in the first place? Yeah, well, many years ago, I basically made a mistake and went to the wrong university initially. 
I went to uh, Baylor University, which is a private Southern Baptist school. Uh, I was led to believe that they would be okay with LGBTQ plus students attending and that it would be a good environment. I quickly discovered that wasn't the case. Went through a year-long traumatic experience where I had very little power or agency to make any changes. And by the time I transferred out of there, I was very interested in reclaiming my agency and trying to make better spaces for LGBTQ folks. So went to UT Austin, immediately joined a queer advocacy group, started learning about policy, systems of injustice, um, and really quickly made this connection that the mental health issues that I faced at a place like Baylor, yes, some of that has to do with our biology and our immediate environment, but a lot of our mental health also comes down to broader systems and policies. Policy is very much a life or death um, arena. Uh, and we're seeing that with this bill, the way that HB 25, um, just debating it makes calls to hotlines spike up, um, suicide hotlines, that is. And the way that we've talked repeatedly throughout the last 10 months about how passing this bill does put the lives of our kids in danger. So I think about that a lot. And I've been thinking about that now for close to 10 years. I've seen this not only from the pro from the journalist perspective, but also as an operator for Trans Lifeline. And not long after one of the hearings over the summer, I got a call from I got a call from a parent who said, and I who said, and I quote, um, "I can you tell me where the trans friendly states are? Because I have to move and take my kid with me. I live in Texas, and we have to go." I mean, for you hearing that, how much of some of your own struggle do you hear in some of these voices when you hear some of them? How much does it harken back to what you just talked about, getting struggling to get your own agency back? Yeah, I mean, it's a parallel echo, right? There's this struggle to get out of places that actively seek to harm us or isolate us and make it somewhere where we can at least survive, um, ideally thrive, right? And so I've heard from many, many families at this point that they're either in the process of moving with their trans kids or they're thinking about it seriously. And this bill was one of those landmarks, I suppose, that people were going to take a look at. And based on whether or not it passed, they would make that decision. And so I expect there will be something of an exodus uh, should Abbott sign the bill into law. And I don't blame them. Um, I intend to stick around personally because I'm deeply invested in this fight now. And I have perhaps less to lose because I don't have a young kid uh, who doesn't have, um, you know, a lot of the tools, the resilience, um, the uh, resources you know, that I've come to have over the years uh, as somebody who's now 30. Uh, so I have less to lose, but a lot of families with young kids have everything to lose. They could lose their kids. And so I don't blame them for wanting to head out or making that decision to head out. Why was this bill put out there in your view? It's sort of the culmination of a number of different uh, cultural uh situations as well as political ones. So for one thing, um, the Republican Party uh, in Texas in particular, but also around the nation, um, over the years with the passage of marriage equality and certain um, employment protections, uh, non-discrimination ordinances, so on and so forth, have found that as these laws have passed and as more and more people uh, are able to say that they know somebody who is lesbian, gay, or bisexual, uh, they are less likely to support the policies that they have traditionally touted targeting uh, sexual orientation, right? Less people can say they know somebody who's transgender. And so what these folks have identified is that this is a vulnerable community that's incredibly easy to bully, that doesn't have that many legal rights yet that would make it hard for them to attack them. And so they see an opportunity to spread misinformation, 
raise money, uh, stoking fears about who we actually are. And then, I mean, we've seen a few transgender athletes here and there um, who have been successful, even if it's in ways that they never wanted. So Mac Beggs comes to mind, the young transgender wrestler who wanted to wrestle on the men's team, but was forced by UIL to wrestle girls and ultimately won the entire tournament um, and upset a whole lot of people who didn't understand that actually being in favor of transgender rights would have prevented all of this from happening and instead chose to join up with far-right advocates who have been attacking trans people anyway and have unknowingly been pushing for a policy that would create more Mac Begs in Texas. One thing that always struck me is these kids who just step into the breach, like a Kai Shapely, like a Sonny Bryant, step into the breach. And these are eight, nine-year-old kids. And they step in and they speak out from on the personal toll seeing it up close and to give to give my listeners and our viewers here in the here in the transporter room nation just a glimpse how difficult is it for these parents to keep getting up knowing they have to deal with the Valerie Swanson who will openly misgender and tell them so how difficult is it for these parents to do it and but what and what keeps them doing it I mean, from what they've been telling me, they are exhausted and they are scared and heartbroken and very, very angry, uh, all of which is understandable. Um, there have been some parents who've had to just miss a hearing here on here or there, either because there wasn't enough notice for them to get down there or because they were just too exhausted, too upset, um, simply needed time away from the Capitol building. Found that understandable. I know the Senate hearings got so bad with uh, Senator Charles Perry and Senator um, Lois Kolkhorst with the misgendering, with interrupting our witnesses as they came up, with asking inappropriate questions about the genitalia of our kids, that we started boycotting Senate hearings on these bills. Um, and so that in part was based on the reaction that parents had to going through that in the first place. So it's been exhausting for them. The travel is exhausting. Having to sit around in a cold building for hours and hours waiting to be called up, exhausting. Having to defend the humanity of their kids repeatedly, exhausting. So they keep doing it though, because the alternative is we don't show up and these bills pass through even faster, and our kids are in danger. Even though it's exhausting and it's heartrending, they keep coming back. And at this point, what we've been able to do to make it easier is we always wait together in the same room during these hearings, and we cheer for our folks when they go up and speak. We make sure that there's food and water and that we're really taking care of each other so that even though these hearings are in inherently traumatizing, we can ease some of the pain of that by sticking together and at least creating community and comfort uh, and carving out our own space in the Capitol. I need to throw a name out here. Go ahead. Monica Roberts. Yes. Even, even though she is on Auntie General Monica is only here with us in spirit, what is she meant? What is her spirit and her example meant to this fight over these last 10 months? For a lot of us, she serves as a North Star, um, as an ancestor whose example we can look to and return to when we are feeling particularly broken or defeated. Um, many of us were lucky enough to get to work with her and fight back and be in the trenches with her. And so losing her has been heartbreaking. And I know that she would have so many things to say about the way the last 10 months have gone. But any time that we have been truly exhausted or ready to give up or just completely felt like there was no point, we've been able to turn to her and her example and everything that she's meant to us and take some of that power from that memory 
and from her legacy and keep pushing forward. Give me a glimpse. What was it like working with her when she was still walking among us? What was that like? It was a privilege and you were constantly reminded that you were not alone and that you were with somebody who was very unafraid to take on even the loudest voices in the room. Monica didn't care about what Charles Perry had to say or how angry he was. She was happy to poke that bear with a stick, you know? And so she had a way of expressing the anger that we all felt, but and being able to do it in a way that was more blunt than a lot of us could figure out how to do, but without getting kicked out of the chamber, it was uh, very impressive. So I don't know. It was a joy in many ways because yeah, there's, there's a lot of humor to be found in being able to kind of verbally cut your foes down to size and make them maybe the same height as you, uh, as well as just, um, the comfort of being in community with somebody who very obviously cares so deeply about every single person in the community. So it was an honor. I, um, I am honored that I uh, was considered one of her peeps as she called them, one of her Austin peeps. What's the plan now going forward? What, what is the next step? Because this is still hanging in the balance. It's on the governor's desk now. What is the next step? And also, for example, how can Transport a Room Nation help? How can people around this country help? What, what role can all of us who we know believe in human rights play in this? Great questions all around. So, yeah, right now it's headed to Governor Abbott's desk. Um, Texas is a unique state in that he does not actually have to sign the bill for it to go into law. He could literally just ignore it and it automatically goes into law unless he vetoes it. We're a strange state in that we kind of do it backwards from many other ones. So he doesn't even have to sign it. Um, he has to actively veto it for it to die. So right now, my effort is just adding pressure as much as I can uh, from Texans, but Honestly, anybody around the nation can help me with this. Just telling him, like, it's time to save lives. It's time to stop playing politics with the lives of kids. Let's veto this bill and move on to more important things. I don't truly believe he will listen, but I think it is important for trans kids to see just how many people are in their corner. And I think it's important for Abbott and for his fellow conservatives to see just how much support there is for trans kids in our state. Because the other thing that is concerning to me is if we pass this bill, it does galvanize our opposition to file more bills that hurt trans people and start trying to pass those too. And even though this bill is terrible, there are worse ones that could be introduced and could pass. You know, there are a lot of problems with this bill from a legal standpoint. If this bill gets signed into law, there's going to be litigation. Um, I expect probably from Lambda Legal, ACLU, and then lots of us will be part of that and trying to provide whatever help that we can to make sure that that's uh, a way that we could get this overturned. A very simple way to stop this from ever happening again would be if Congress would pass the Equality Act. So... Other Say things. that one more time for the people in the back, please. Yeah, if you want the end of like crappy anti-trans legislation, we have to pass the Equality Act. We just, we have to, because it puts to bed a lot of the what-ifs for the really far-right Republicans that salivate over the idea of making us lose our rights. I want to get a quick take on you on this. Did it frustrate you that there wasn't more national media coverage. There wasn't more national news coverage surrounding what's happening because now you have this nation's second and third largest states that have discrimination against transgender people as state law. Now, Texas, Florida. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of the national media was late paying attention to this. I can you know, understand why to an extent because a lot of attention was paid to texas in 17 when we had the bathroom bill and then it was defeated and i think a lot of people thought it would go the same way here especially after 
the regular and the first two special sessions, I don't think a lot of people thought it would actually pass. But the second that former President Trump attacked Speaker Phelan, and the more that we saw pressure from Governor Abbott's primary opponent to attack trans people, that should have been a wake-up call for the rest of the nation that things might be about to change. And that's exactly what we saw. So that's been a little frustrating. I will still take more media attention on this issue like late than never. Um, I do want to make sure that it's covered accurately, though, as in I don't want this to be, I don't want it to become an issue where the media covers this and paints Texas as a place that's inherently hateful um, and full of bigots who want to hurt trans kids and gosh, maybe all these families should just move away and there's no hope here. The majority of Texans don't want discriminatory laws. They don't want discriminatory bills to pass. And so I want it to be clear that when bills like this do become law in this state, it is against the will of the majority of the people who live here. I must say that was a very Hoovian analysis that you just gave. That was some that was some serious Doctor Who stuff, and I expect it. Being you told me in the green room, you're a Hoovian. I'm just just a quick take, just a twi- quick take on the geek tip. What's your thoughts on now the current Doctor Who? We can't call it the new one anymore. No, um, I have loved her. I've enjoyed uh, watching the way that she embodies this beloved character and like what she brings to it, as well as what she borrows from past iterations. Um, yeah, I, I've adored it. I'm looking forward to the next season. Um, I understand it's the actress's last, which is sad for me, but I'm still looking forward to it. Um, there's lots of adventures ahead and I think a lot actually about Doctor Who, uh, whenever I start to get really down uh, in this line of work, because The thing about the doctor is they always have hope, right? They look for like the bright spots of humanity and they're always finding the people that want to help. And I feel like what I get to do at the ledge is exhausting, but we're able to pull off truly incredible feats because a lot of the people that want to help do end up convening at the Capitol and do end up shutting down really horrible bills and also making some really cool legislation that ends up passing. I'm going to end with this one. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit then. Go back through the history of the great state of Texas. You have to pick a Texan to be a Doctor Who. Could be from any point in Texas history, 1836 forward. Who would be Texas's time lord? Who would be in a Texas TARDIS? Wow, that's an incredible question. I could see Barbara Jordan. You know something? I was just thinking that. (laughs) That was the first one that popped in my head. She was the first black state senator that we ever had. And then she became a uh, Texas Supreme Court justice. Uh, She also uh, ended up presiding over the case on Nixon and had a really incredible speech about the integrity of our nation. She's given some of the best speeches in, honestly, in American history about the power of, uh, of, um, of racial minorities. Um, obviously not racial minorities at this point, but at the time. Um, and basically she was just this incredibly fierce, but fair woman who, made our state better pretty much every time she opened her mouth. One quick note before we go, though. What was it like to be called for a resolution on the House floor? What was it, what was it like to get that commendation? Because I saw, I saw the te- all, the, all the tweets on it, and especially to be called for commendation by people who in that, in that body really stood in the gap. What was it like for you to be recognized in that way? Uh, It was an honor. I didn't expect it at all. 
when I first started seeing some of the commendations pop up for other advocates, it was largely uh, trans and allied folks who are running organizations, nonprofits that are dedicated to equality. So my assumption was that they would just stick with that. And I was just happy to see LGBTQ plus people getting recognition at all. So when I got my own, I actually broke down crying a little bit out of gratitude um, because a lot of this work is quiet um, and it is exhausting and it's not necessarily thankless, but it takes more of a toll on you. That means a lot when you have these legislative champions that are saying like, you deserve to be recognized for what you've done as well. It feels like if they're, if they're saying that I'm doing something right, I must truly be doing something right. Cause they've been on top of it since January, really since before then. And so to be seen by fellow warriors, uh, is an honor. You're now a friend of the show here and we're going to want you back. The force of Monica Roberts is strong in this one. People Ash, Thank you for being a part of the transporter room. Thank you for being here. It was a high honor. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. We're going to beam Ash back down to Austin to keep doing the great work that they're doing. And you've heard the red alert noise. You know what that means. Got to give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to talk to a fitness professional who wants to make total inclusion for everybody part of the certification process. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. Back here at the Transporter Room, I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And if you've been in on the show over the last few weeks, you've noticed we've brought in a lot of athletes. Some names you may not know, but probably need to know. People who have transitioned and played their sports, worked through the intersections of both, and given us their story in their own words. Also, if you've been checking in on the Transporter Room, You know, we've had our finger on the pulse of a lot of the political sides of the issue, especially the battle that we have seen in Texas over the last few months, including Sunday's very difficult decision, which still hurts even now in the middle of the week, that a state would make discrimination legal. But within all the things we've heard from all these varied voices and the voices you're going to continue to hear in the weeks ahead, a question has popped into my mind. What about coaches? What about trainers? What about those who are helping athletes achieve their best time, achieve their best mark, help them make that team, help them reach those podiums? Where are they in this? Well, there's a fitness professional in Connecticut who's not only asking those questions, they seek to have some answers. And they are our guest today. Megan Crutchley is a fitness professional. They're a non-binary health coach, speaker, writer, and queer health advocate. And they are setting on, along with others, on an ambitious project to center fitness from a queer trans, and gender nonconforming perspective. Not only do they seek to have this centering, they seek to have this centering as a part of certification for those who seek to train and seek to coach. And it's time to hear from them. From Western Connecticut, we're now beaming up Megan Crutchley Energize. Boom. Megan, welcome to welcome to the transporter room. Just a quick molecule check. No, no doubles came through. No, no, no ADF powered Megan Crutchley came through. So that's a good thing. Um, first off, welcome to the show, and it is great to be. It's great to hear about your project, and I can't wait to dive into it. But first, tell our audience a little bit about yourself in your own words. 
Yeah, well, I'm super excited to be here. I love your podcast. The interviews that you do are so amazing. Oh, thank necessary. you. And it's really important to hear from people in their own voices about their own stories, because as we know, there's so much in media. Um, there's so much that goes on with identity politics that there's a lot of misinformation out there. And that's one of the things that I aim to help coaches and fitness professionals and trainers to debunk, but really just to have a, a more critical and understanding lens. And so I come from a background of I, I'm, I've been a, a gender non-conforming person for a very long time before I had language around it, before I had language around being non-binary. And when I found that language, it was very freeing to me. But I still found in my space as being a, you know, a former gym owner, but also just even going to gyms myself, the things that I continually dealt with. As someone that was a professional at a pretty high level in my profession that I was constantly misgendered and constantly had to deal with things just on the way to just go get my workout and put my headphones on and do my thing. And so it, it I just got really fed up the last year and a half and said, you know, I have a platform. I can do something about this. I need to start doing something about it. Now, what are the things that got you fed up? Uh, you know, I think... Being in fitness for years, I was a teacher and then I transitioned into being a trainer and a coach and a nutrition coach. There's just, there's so much exclusion that happens in the fitness space, not just around gender non-conforming people, but when we talk about body diversity, when we talk about body image and shame and, and where these types of, you know, standards come from. They're very Eurocentric standards of beauty that are really based on, 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 you know, white European beauty models. Our body represents so many things to us. It's not just where we live, but it's, it's impacted by images. It's impacted by society. It's impacted on whether or not we belong in spaces or whether or not we're deemed worthy. How did all those things affect you? Because you're a fitness professional, you're in the sport, you're in sports before that, mm -hmm. and as a gym owner, but also as a person trying to find and affirm who they are. How did all those factors come into play for yourself, and how did you navigate them? Well, I think I just have a lot of experience with it. I remember having conversations with my mom growing up my entire life around the clothes I wore, around how long my hair was, around if I had earrings in or not. Um, it was a constant struggle for me to assert myself to just be comfortable as myself and, and be comfortable, comfortable expressing myself in the way that I wanted to live. And I found that when I got into fitness, um, it was something where I worked, you know, with queer youth when I was a teacher and I presented in the way I'm presenting now and, and had really interesting conversations with kids, definitely dealt with some homophobia, but, um, really had a pretty positive experience teaching. And then, you know, I went into fitness and, would go to different conferences, would go work with these really high level trainers who are, you know, training sports teams for professional sports and people at the pinnacle of their sport. And I would, it, it, I would definitely be glossed over. My wife and I would usually attend together and it would be something where I would get stared at. I would, I would feel very uncomfortable. Um, I definitely felt homophobia in certain places because people knew my wife and I were together at a conference. So it's been like a really long standing thing that I've dealt with as far as, okay, this is my experience. This is the experience of people who are gender non-conforming everywhere in public spaces. But I, I have a responsibility in my space because I know this is happening to me. And actually, I think that you know, trans masculine people in general actually have an easier time in something like fitness. Um, because right. It's a little bit more of an established norm to see someone that looks like me in the gym, probably from the homophobia that 
all women that play sports, even though I identify as non-binary, I'm talking about this as far as something that I experienced my whole life as well, are lesbians. You're really good at sports. I mean, I remember being called a lesbian well before I knew I was a lesbian because I was a three-sport athlete and I was really good at sports. And I didn't wear, you know, um, very feminine clothing. And, and that really, I see that carried over into this space as well of like, if you're non-conforming, well, what does, who's at least accepted in that experience? What will this certification look like? What will it entail? Yeah. So I'm reaching out to people in the top of their fields. So I have, you know, two people that are the heads of major trans health programs um, in, in, at Boston Medical and at Middlesex Hospital in Connecticut and actually at the NYU Hospital and making En-ROADS as well to talk about things like tissue recovery. So talking about things that are very specific but have to do with sports and fitness, have to do with how we help our people. Because, you know, I, I really look at the basis of if you are, are an inclusive, compassionate coach, you're a human coaching other humans. That's how I see it. And so we need to be aware of the human experience. And so that's part of what this certification is. It's, it's understanding language. It's understanding appropriate dialogue. It's understanding um, issues that, that clients may be having within a gym space within a gendered gym space, how those things might reinforce expectations. And so talking to people that are scholars and things like uh, gender studies to talk about like where our identities are formed, because a big part of this is just talking about the diversity of human beings in general and realizing that we've just been taught this extremely narrow focus and told that that is correct. And it actually excludes so many other people, which is what I was talking about in the beginning of our interview, that it's, it's that inclusion helps everyone, right? I mean, we're in, we have spaces that are more accessible in gyms because of, of, you know, disability lobbying. So, you know, we have more, and we don't even realize that that's an invisible thing to us because that might not be part of our experience, but that type of work made things better and more accessible for everyone. And so that's also what this is about. It's not a special group getting special rights or needing special things. It's, it's actually about understanding language that's appropriate, understanding that, you know, how to, to make people more included as far as using their pronouns making sure that people have what they need to feel safe so that they're not, you know, feeling displaced in your environment. And then you're trying to coach them and teach them. That's not a learning environment for anyone. If people aren't safe, I also have athletes coming in to talk about their experience. I have um, someone coming in who is a non-binary martial arts expert uh, that also works on things like policy and codes of conducts for gyms trauma-informed work. So, so things that are, are going to be helpful to everyone that are actually going to help gym owners and trainers make sure that they have things to that they can actually enforce should something happen in their gym, right? Where, and, and instead of kind of not doing anything about it, um, having something that in, in, in locker rooms on the gym floors about expectations for that space and, and then reinforcing it. And that's how inclusion happens. You know, it has to be that you present and show up for everyone. And that's not happening now in the fitness space. And it's not just gender non-conforming people. It's people with different bodies. It's, it's what we talked about in the beginning. It's a very, very, um, shame inducing industry right now. And as a result, it's honestly in need of a huge transition and need of a huge, actually disruption is a better word. Now within all that, a critical question that's come out, especially with some of the things we've seen in the sports atmosphere it, in the last few months, we've, for the first time we had a person who identifies as trans and non-binary 
at the Olympics win a gold medal. More recently, we've had an entire sports league that put up a, a comprehensive, imperfect, flawed in areas, but at least an, a comprehensive attempt at a trans and non-binary participation policy. Now, as a non-binary person who's in sports, how do we include, what needs to change to bring non-binary people into sport the way that we have to? as themselves yeah what needs to change in that i think that's a really big question and it's going to take some unpacking and some trial and error to see um i think that they i think that right now too there there are going to be different considerations as far as elite athletes um i think that non-binary people are, are going to fall prey to what happens with trans athletes where, you know, um, trans men have very little besides, you know, a therapeutic exemption used for testosterone. They, they are not subject to the same type of testing and rigmarole and, you know, invasiveness that trans women are as far as you know, their, their hormone replacement therapy and where they are in their stages, um, of while they're competing. So I think that that probably is going to come into play with bond non-binary people. When we get to the elite level, I think that it has to just be that people need to talk about inclusion and they need to be aware that this is something that is actually necessary and happening. And I think that's starting to happen more, but I think sometimes we give people a little bit of, um, there's not a lot of language and dialogue in, in the mainstream in sports other than whether or not trans people should be in sports. That's the only thing that I see as something that is the conversation and, and obviously that's a major part of the conversation, but we really need to have the conversation as far as like, well, what, what are we doing for inclusion for, for all people? And then that's where the non-binary people are going to come in. so I think it's really gonna, I think it's going to depend on the conversations that we have. And then also what governing bodies either making a distinct, you know, there was just a really big ride in, um, Rebecca Rush, who is a really famous endurance cyclist, um, elite athlete, does this amazing Rebecca's private Idaho ride. And she created a a non-binary category. And so they had, because she has, you know, elite riders in there, it's like a hundred mile course, the longest ones. And that worked out really well for them. And, um, I think that stuff like that is going to start to happen more where there might be separate categories. Um, I don't know. It's so, it's so nuanced in sports as far as what people talk about, as far as, you know, there's so many different avenues that this can go, that it's kind of hard to say what we need to do, but it needs to start with us actually having conversations. Why is the current conversation in your view? Why is it cut so dehumanizing? When I'm not a journalist, I'm also an athlete. I I see a lot of homophobia and a lot of transphobia, but also a lot of femphobia and a massive amount of dehumanization. Mm -hmm. Where do you feel that comes from? How do we humanize that human experience? It's pretty horrific when you look at um, how dehumanizing this conversation is when we're talking just about diversity. And that's the thing that is really problematic for me is that fitness is a very homogeneous space. It's extremely gendered and it's extremely, um, there's, there's a, a, a real kind of look for this is how men look. And then this is how women look in the fitness space. And then everything kind of falls suit from that, like non-binary. So I think the way that it becomes more humanized is, is again, having conversations, but we also have to have like, this is what part of what I want to be doing in my sort like the main thing is I 
my whole thing is I just want to make fitness more accessible for more people. I want to make it safe for the queer community. And I also want coaches because I have a huge network of friends who are coaches that literally have no dialogue that are, you know, contact me. And they're like, I don't know what language to use. One of my clients just came out as non-binary. I, how do I support them? You know? And so I think that a really big part of this has to do with education that the queer community that trans and non-binary people have been so marginalized for so long and continue to be that I think that there just needs to be more contact. I think there needs to be more conversation and we actually can't assume that people know about any of these issues besides what they see on the media, unfortunately, because for so many people that is not a part of their consciousness of what they think about when they think about diversity and in them as well, that's extremely limiting as well, that they also don't maybe, and have never questioned their gender. Maybe they have never questioned. And that's part of this is that gender non-conforming people and trans people are, they, they put a mirror up. And they actually make people question themselves and realize that they, they're in a box. And sometimes people don't want to see that because then it's destabilizing. I really think that's a big part of why this conversation is so aggressive and why, for instance, there's so much violence against trans women. I really think it's because it's destabilizing to people that are very, for lack of better words, like in this matrix and invested in this system. And I, I really see that that's, that's a, a very big part of that gendered mentality. Um, and this is how men look and this is how women look is like a huge part, part of sports and fitness culture. If you look all over the sporting realm, there are all types of body types in elite sport. Yep. You have, you have jumping bodies, you have throwing bodies, you have bodies that can, that on a thought can run 100 meters in less than 10 seconds. And there are big bodies, there are small bodies, there are anomalies in sport, in, across all sports. Why do you think this still persists, even with what we know and what we've seen in this, tele, in this televised glam world of sports that we have right now? Why does this still persist? In some ways, it's like we're still in the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting question. I think it still persists in sports because it still persists in our society. Very non-binary, you know, a very, sorry, binary society where like, these are the characteristics that make you a male and this is what you need to uphold. And these are the characteristics that make you a female. And these are the things that you need to uphold in your role. Like those things are still extremely pervasive in our society. And I think That's why they're so pervasive in sports as well, because it, you know, um, it is a place, interestingly enough, where you do have a specific role. You're playing a certain position. You're, you know, you're, you're part of a team. So there is this kind of atmosphere that like you might be, and there's individual sports as well, obviously, but there are expectations that are put on you as an athlete, but at the end of the day, you, you're also part of the culture that we all share together and we're all affected by these things. I continually am learning about these things myself and, and I consider myself to have a pretty good critical lens of culture and, you know, analysis of these things, but not every, not everybody does. Not everybody thinks about these things and, Um, or thinks that maybe they're going to be an outsider as a result of that, or just like we see with, you know, um, queer athletes not coming out in, in male sports at the same rate that they do come out in female sports. That's obviously a really serious culture of toxic masculinity where people don't feel safe. We know that there's tons of queer male athletes that are playing at the professional elite level and they're not out not anywhere to the same degree that they are in women's sports. So that is a, that is a cultural issue. That is something that it's not a numbers game. That is, we know they're there. 
that is something that has to do inside of that culture that does not allow people to feel safe to come out. Earlier, you talked about how you dealt with a lot of these things and dealt with a lot of these questions growing up. And right now, kids growing up and wanting to play sports and wanting to find their truth, whatever it is, is kind of in the warhead. Mm. First, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing in the landscape? Most recently, a few days ago, Texas became the 10th state to pass a bill that basically said, if you're, if you're trans in a school, you cannot play. Also, with that in mind, you live in a state where there was a three-year running controversy over two kids who just mm -hmm. wanted to play for their school. Mm -hmm. And K Street character assassins called them everything but a child of God. What are your thoughts on what you're seeing in this landscape right now on this issue? Trans rights in our country, especially for right-wing um, conservative groups, are, um, you know, racist you know we say conservative whatever really right-wing you know racist and anti-lgbtq groups i think that there's there's a strong enough lobby now for the lgbtq plus community that actually the trans community doesn't have yet right because there's even contention within which is horrible but there but there isn't even real complete unity within the lgbtq population and i say that because that means that you know that not everybody has a queer consciousness like not everybody would agree on this subject that i've talked to and some of this is generational um even in the lgbtq plus community so i think that one of the things that we need is we need a stronger lobby for trans rights because I think that the right wing politicians are seeing it as low hanging fruit and they're doing these copycat bills that are running through and they're, um, and, and part of our country is getting extremely, extremely right wing and is doubling down on things like white supremacy, which is where the gender binary comes from. So these ideas are kind of mixed in with that whole horrible, rhetoric when i came out at 17 being gay i it was a horrifying experience for me it was a really difficult experience and in my town being a gender non-conforming person after that i had lots of incidences where i i was threatened where i got stared at walking down the street that happens a lot less but i'm seeing kids now that are trans and non-binary still going through the same thing that I was going through coming out as a lesbian in 1997. And I don't think that that's acceptable. And that shows that there is a rift in the consciousness of people too to say, okay, well, LGBTQ people have their rights, but they forget about the T and then they go, oh no, no, trans youth and sports, that's a whole nother issue. And it's not, it's the same issue. It's about inclusion and it's about making sure that people feel safe and can be who they are. Mm -hmm. When you do get that coach who calls and says, okay, Megan, I have a person who I'm working with who's trying to reach their goals and they tell me they are non-binary. Mm -hmm. The only thing I know about non-binary is what the pronouns are. I have no vocabulary for this help. What do you tell that person? What it's about is I'll, you know, I'll talk to them about their relationship because coaching is a relationship, right? And that's the, that's, that's where coaches make the biggest impact. Some of the biggest, you know, most important um, relationships I've had in my life have been with coaches and actually some of the worst relationships I've had in my life have been with coaches. And, you know, it's this amazing opportunity to be this person in a space where, where you help someone achieve their, the things that they want for themselves. And, um, so we talk about pronouns, pronouns is a really big thing. Uh, we talk about why that's important to reinforce people's pronouns because you see them when you're using someone's correct pronoun, you see, you're, you're seeing them, you're validating that, you know, who they are and, and that that's who they are and that you respect that. And so that's extremely important. And then really it's just human beings, right? I mean, if, if um, that person has particular needs around a sport or is dealing with something with 
you know, locker rooms or not being included in a sport or having or not maybe coming out to, you know, there's different nuance to it that would be part of it. But at the end of the day, it really just has to do with like, what is your relationship with the person you're working with, with your client? And then if they're sharing things with you about, for instance, being on hormone replacement therapy, that's where we have to like help people set some expectations because sometimes what happens, and I was just talking to my, my medical friends about this is people have, it is, you know, we were talking about, um, uh, hormone replacement protocols and they were talking, they were like, well, you know, there's not, there's not so much as a universal, there's kind of an umbrella you know, protocol that we use, but it's not universal because literally you could take the same dose of testosterone, start on the same protocol and you have, you'll have completely different results with someone else that has very, very similar physiological, you know, um, characteristics and demographics, and you have a completely different reaction to it. And so she said that some of the things that they deal with in working in trans health is, is framing people's expectations of what's going to happen with their body. And I think that for coaches and trainers, that's really important to know as well, because that's so much of what people come to us for is they, you want to want to get more fit, whatever fit means to them, right? And that's part of my dialogue. They, they might want to change their body in some way, um, understanding the reasoning behind that. Right. And so if someone comes to you and they're non-binary, it might just be that they, you know, dialogue, they may or may not change their name. They may or may not be seeking surgery. Um, and then it's also just about reinforcing that relationship with that person continuing to be respectful. And really it just kind of comes down to just being a human being. Um, and so then also asking them say, Hey, how can I support you? And they'll tell you their pronouns, or you can definitely ask. That's something that is really courteous and shows a lot of respect. And then ask, how, how else can I help you? And they may have something else, or they might just be like, I, I just appreciate you being there. Who knows? Right. But at the end of the day, it's humans coaching humans. One thing before we head out, because you know you're going to get this, right? I don't know what I'm going to say. Megan, you're, that's wokest. That's that woke BS coming out and you're, you're, you're sissifying our fitness spaces. You're changing everything around. You're getting everybody all woke and you're ruining everything. How would you answer to that? Cause you know, with these things as groundbreaking and forward thinking as they are. Yeah. Push. That's where the pushback is that that whole word. This is too woke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if I were talk, if it were fitness professionals that were talking to me about it, I would then talk about the, the, how inclusion brings everybody together. And so that's why I'm making these conversations also about the needs of people that we're seeing in fitness spaces that are not gender non-conforming people and, um, how this type of language, you know, is detrimental to them that like how if we can actually expand and become better coaches and understand our own, just become more aware. And even as coaches, we know that a big part of being helpful to other people is being aware of, for instance, the things that influence us and that might create bias in us. And when people talk about the word woke, I mean, it's something where, you know, I studied Buddhism in college. I was a Buddhist major and Buddhism has been a big part of my life for a long time and actually saved my life at one point. And so, you know, the Buddha means the awakened one. So the word woke is like 2,500 years old. If we talk about, you know, that's the word Buddha. So I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm woke, but I would definitely say that I'm on the path to trying to do better for myself and for other people. Well, one thing, if this makes, if this can make sports and fitness spaces that much better, I'm as a person who is an athlete, a person who wants to stay fit, I'm all for it. So if this can get us in that direction, I'm on board with it because especially what we're seeing in the landscape. Yeah. So Megan, like I said, we want you back. 
We're gonna get you back more than once. You're now a friend of the. You're now a friend of the podcast. You're not just what, listening to the podcast. You're not a friend of it. Okay. And I really appreciate uh, as an athlete and as someone who just loves sports and who knows the positive power of of making your of extending your body beyond what you think it can. It's important that we're having these conversations, and it's good to see somebody just really taking the reins. And like I said, I hey, I march right alongside you. So, Megan, thank you for this, and thank you for being in the transporter room today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, we're going to beam you back down to Connecticut so you can get back to work. And I want to thank Megan Crutchley for being here. I want to thank all of you for being a part of the transporter room as well. Um, and if there's something that you like, something you don't like, something you want to see or something you want to say about what we're doing here, please leave a message on our Twitter page. Please leave a DM on our Facebook page. And, and coming soon, our Instagram um, presence is going to be up as well. And if there's other things you want to see, especially in this special series that we're doing leading up, to Trans Day of Remembrance, uh, please send us that message. Because remember, everything I do at the Transporter Room, I do for you, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper. Steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.